welcome to this podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Prohibition of Eviction Without Good Cause. Dorothy Heil, chair of the City Bar Real Property Law Committee, speaks with Justin Lamort and Alex Likianis. Justin is the supervising attorney for the Housing Rights Project of Mobilization for Justice and former Real Property Law Committee chair. Alex is a partner at Rosenberg and Estes and a member of the Real Property Law Committee. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Dorothy Heil. Hello, my name is Dorothy Heil and I'm the chair of the Real Property Law Committee of the New York City Bar. Our subject today is a bill in Albany known as the Good Cause Eviction Law. The actual name of the bill is the Prohibition of Eviction Without Good Cause which is a much easier name to understand than good cause eviction law. But, but, but even so, it raises some questions. For instance, what is good cause and what is eviction? I think that good cause is actually better understood as bad cause. In other words, what the bill means is that tenants cannot be evicted for a bad cause. And a bad cause might be defined as a raise in the rent that's excessive. The other confusing um, part about the title is eviction, because we think of eviction as tenants who have leases and are in landlord tenant court and that sort of thing. But the um, but the bill is much broader and it actually encompasses um, just removing um, people from any lodging in which they are paying rent. And it's much more complex than that, but that's just a simple understanding of it. So it means that landlords or people that are taking rent from people cannot get rid of people living in their properties if they have a bad reason to do it. So let me introduce the two guest speakers who know a ton more about this bill than I do. Uh, The first speaker is Alexander Likoyanis. He's a member of the Real Property Law Committee, which I chair. He's a a partner at Rosenberg and Estes and a member with the firm's litigation and appeals departments. Alex represents real estate developers, commercial tenants, as well as individuals who own a single building. He's litigated disputes arising out of commercial leases and contracts for the purchase and sale of real property, commercial and residential landlord tenant litigation, the New York City loft law, condominium and cooperative disputes, and other areas relating to real property in New York. Alex writes and speaks on a variety of real estate related topics, including good cause eviction. Our other guest is pretty much on the opposite side. He's a former chair of the New York City Bar Association's Housing Court Committee. Justin Lamort is the supervising attorney for the Housing Rights Project of Mobilization for Justice. Before that, he was a supervising attorney at Canva Legal Services, and is a steering committee member of the Brooklyn Tenant Lawyers Network. Justin teaches landlord tenant litigation at Brooklyn Law School, where he's adjunct professor and manages their housing clinic. He's written extensively on issues of space, place, and inequality in law reviews, and is a frequent speaker on issues of housing justice. So what we're going to do first is our two guests are going to explain why they either like or don't like the good cause eviction bill. So we'll begin with Justin. Justin, what's your view of the good cause eviction bill? Thank you, Dorsey. So I'm gonna try to explain the law with some examples and then go into what the bill actually says. 
A single mother who is a nurse living in the South Bronx is accosted by the landlord. After denying his advances, she is told her lease will not be renewed and she has to leave in 30 days. Two teachers and their children live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. One child's asthma attack reveals there is mold behind the walls. The parents ask for it to be repaired properly by a licensed individual. They are soon asked to leave in 30 days. An attorney moves to a studio apartment on the Upper East Side. They pay a broker's fee, a security deposit, first month's rent, last month's rent, application fee, credit check fee, and the cost of movers. 11 months later, they are told they must pay 50% a rent increase or that they have 30 days to leave. This is a lived experience of millions of renters in New York State. I became an attorney because I believe in public service and working towards solving hard problems. The proposed good cause bill utilizes the latest economic research and addresses the lopsided power dynamics between landlords and tenants that distorts the market, leads to abuse, and a lack of accountability. So what is good cause? It means tenants are protected from unreasonable rent increases and can remain unless the landlord has a good cause, hence the name, to evict them. Permitted reasons to evict include non-payment of rent, nuisance, breach of lease, illegal use, refusal to provide access, and owner's personal use for small landlords. However, landlords can no longer evict without a reason, which is what currently happens. The right to remain protects tenants who face harassment, discrimination, or assert their rights to live in safe housing. The laws currently on the books are incredibly hard to enforce and put great risk at tenants who speak up. The majority of tenants in New York State do not have an attorney, so they are forced to navigate complex litigation alone, and if unsuccessful, may be ordered to pay thousands of dollars in attorney's fees, have an eviction on their record, and move imminently or face homelessness. As to rent, the good cause bill would create a rebuttable presumption that a rent increase is unreasonable if it is either A, greater than 3%, or B, 150% of the consumer price index, whichever is greater. Currently, what that would mean is that landlords would be allowed to increase the rent to around 10%. But what we're seeing on the ground, according to a recent report by Redfin, is that New Yorkers are seeing increases of around 30% this year. Landlords could still increase rent above that presumption of reasonable, but would need to justify it as, as such as an increase to taxes, utility bills, or emergency repair costs. The bill is designed to stop price gouging, not profits, to promote stability, not speculation. Locally, good cause already exists in subsidized housing and rent-regulated housing, which makes up over half of NYC's housing stock, but it is far less prevalent upstate. Other cities such as Albany, Newburgh, Kingston, Beacon, and Poughkeepsie already have good cause. And good cause is already the rule of the land when it comes to the states of California, Oregon, and for nearly 50 years in New Jersey, and the housing market sir, still function. This common sense proposal to have a right to remain has received support from tenant organizations, legal service providers, labor unions, progressive organizations, the attorney general's office, the public advocate's office, among many others, but is currently being opposed by a million dollar campaign by the real estate lobby. The reason the real estate lobby is spending millions on hyperbole and theatrics is about power. It is a power that landlords have over a necessity and engage in what economists called profit push inflation. In layman terms, this means that price gouging where profit margins 
are widened without much risk to their market share, creating an environment where rents are quick to rise, but very slow to be reduced. This is especially true when the increase of the financialization of the housing market caused by the rampant speculation. Here in New York City, the average landlord owns around 20 buildings and 900 apartments. This power goes unchallenged when there is little supply for shelter and what it comes with is the access to your job, your family, and your friends. So when you have a commodity that is a necessity and where people can't just leave the market because they need shelter, it creates a situation ripe for abuse and it falls on public policy and regulations to govern those abuses of an unchecked oligopoly. Okay, Justin, so there's a lot there. And now we're gonna hear the other side position on this bill. Uh, Alex? Thank, thank you, Dorothy. So, you know, I, I, you know, I appreciate Justin's, you know, opening uh, his, his monologue, uh, but you know, I, I think that there is a lot of, I'll say, you know, it, you know, maybe some extreme examples as to why favors this bill. Uh, the point of the matter is that the the examples he gives, you know, don't really speak to what this bill actually says. And to the extent that there are issues that have to be addressed in the real estate market and in the rental market, you know, we can talk about those particular issues. But this is a really, really sweeping piece of legislation. And, and what it does is it, it essentially inverts the, uh, the relationship between a property owner and a tenant. What it essentially does is it makes the tenant into the owner of the property that controls how long he or she stays there. Um, and, and basically allows that tenant to, to, eg to exert the control over a property that an owner rightfully should have. And the owner uh, essentially has all of the burdens and costs of property ownership with, with virtually none of the benefits. The owner is essentially turned into a public utility uh, like, uh, like Con Edison or, or another similar type of company. And, and if you really look at, you know, what's What's driving the, the, the push for good cause eviction, uh, it is a, a bigger um, issue than just New York. It's part of a nationwide effort to impose rent control in, in various areas of the country. Um, Justin mentioned various other states where, uh, where it's been imposed or, or, or where rent control has been imposed. But I think that, you know, Justin makes a point about uh, New Jersey. We'll get into it during the course of the podcast, I'm sure. But the, the good cause bill is nothing like what's in, in New Jersey. You have to look at what the bill actually says. And I think one of the, one of the things, the problematic items of this bill and, and the discourse around the bill is that the proponents talk about general feelings and general principles, but what's before the legislature is not a principle or a feeling or a, or a tear-jerking anecdote. What is before the legislature is a bill containing words, and those words have serious and sweeping consequences. There are particular items that can be addressed. You know, they, they should be addressed. I mean, if you took a Venn diagram and you put the, you know, the issues that, that tenants face overlapping with steps that owners are willing to take to help address them, 
I think there's a lot of overlap. Uh, but you know, if you look at, for example, you know, if if you if you apply the bill as written and you read the and you read the bill, the bill covers not only leases between landlords and tenants, but virtually you know any imaginable transaction where one person pays another person to occupy real estate, right? So we're talking about this in the context of a landlord and a tenant, right? But if you actually read the definitions in the bill, it applies to hotel guests, a weekend Airbnb rental, a vacation rental for a week in you know, the Adirondacks or the Hamptons. It even applies to college students, right? Living in a dormitory. So if it, it basically applies to any anyone who's occupying real estate under any conceivable circumstance. And if you happen to be lucky enough to be in possession at the time this bill is passed, well, guess what? You don't have to leave ever, right? If you like that beach house in West Hampton on Dune Road, or you like that cabin in the Adirondacks or in the Finger Lakes, guess what? You don't have to leave ever. I, I think that, again, this bill is, you know, a lot of the people who are proposing and pushing it, their, their heart comes from a good place. And I think that Again, if there are issues relating to tenants in, in New York, those issues can be addressed by a focused manner. This good cause eviction bill, in my estimation, is not in response to some of the examples that Justin brought up. And, and in existing law, a lot of those are already addressed. For example, you already can't retaliatory, engage in retaliatory eviction where someone made a complaint within, within a year of the effort to evict. And that's just one example. A lot of these things are already addressed or they can be addressed in a focused way. In my estimation, researching the issue, being part of the Senate hearings and kind of observing what's been going on, my view is that this is really an effort to, to change the relationship of landlord and tenant fundamentally in currently free market apartments in New York. And it's not really related to some of the individual anecdotes or issues that, that Justin is bringing up. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that more throughout the course of the podcast. Uh, but I, I think in terms of analyzing this bill, we would benefit a lot more by actually looking at the bill's language rather than specific anecdotes and stereotyping owners as rapacious. And, you know, when in, in reality, the great majority of, of owners are are small, medium-sized owners, and they just want stable buildings. They don't want to kick people out willy-nilly. Well, thank you, Alec. Obviously, there's two very opposite views as to what this bill does and will accomplish. And I think the first misconception that you've identified, Alex, is that there's a rent increase cap of 3% or 1.5 times CPI. So why is that a misconception? Okay. So if you look at the, at the statute and it's if anybody has access to the bill, it is section 214A, right? So if you read the first sentence, and this is the first basis for good cause, right? That, that an owner could have to seek, the, uh, to seek to recover possession from a tenant. And I'll just read the first sentence. The tenant has failed to pay rent due and owing, provided, however, that the rent due and owing or any part thereof did not result from a rent increase, which is unreasonable or imposed for the purpose of circumventing the intent of this article, period, end of sentence, okay? We'll talk about the, <laughs> the purpose of, of circumventing the intent of the article, I'm sure at some point you know, during the hour, but the, the basis stated in the bill is that the rent increase cannot be unreasonable, 
okay? There's no monetary or numerical value attached to that. The standard is unreasonable. If you go on to the next sentence, it states that if the rent increase is 3% or one and a half times CPI, whichever is higher, the rent increase is presumptively unreasonable. So what that means is if, if there is a rent increase of that amount, the burden shifts to the owner to justify the, that the, the increase is proper, right? But ultimately it's up to the judge. I mean, you could say that there's a, you know, a, you know they replaced the roof, uh, the price of fuel went up, inflation, whatever, whatever basis there is to raise the rent above, the, above that threshold, the owner conceivably could establish, and if the judge agrees, there could be a five or a 10% or whatever increase. Conversely, if there's a 1% increase, that doesn't mean that it's not unreasonable because a tenant in a, in a proceeding under this bill could still make the argument, right? And you know, would it be harder for a tenant to argue that a 1% increase is unreasonable? Yes, it would be harder, but that's not to say that a tenant couldn't make the argument. And, and keep in mind also that in, this, in New York City, there's currently a bill that states that up to 200% of the federal poverty level the tenants are entitled to attorneys uh, in, in housing court. And, and there's also a state bill allowing uh, tenants to have attorneys regardless of income level. So the, the overall, I think, push is to have tenants uh, have attorneys that are paid for to, to make these arguments. And, and so you can be assured that these arguments are going to be challenged. And if, a, if an attorney is zealously representing his or her client, they're going to make every argument that's available to them. And if there's a rent increase and if there's any conceivable basis to say it's unreasonable, they're going to argue that it's unreasonable. So, you know, in some people talk about there's a rent cap. And if I rent, if I raise the rent to 3%, I'm okay. That's, that's not how the statute works or the bill works in actuality. In actuality, any rent increase could conceivably be unreasonable if a judge agrees. Well, Alex, how often can they raise it 3% un under the bill? Could they raise it 3% every year so that in five years it would be raised, you know, 15%? Well, I mean, the, the bill is, is, doesn't, really, doesn't really speak to that. And, and that's one of, the, that's one of the, the issues. with Another meta issue with the bill is that it's very vague, very, not, not very long. It's only four pages. And, and there's a lot of situations like like that which you bring up that are just not addressed but but again even in that in that follow-up question that just shows how ingrained the three percent limit is there's there's no saying that there's no definite confirmation or guarantee that three percent is okay it might not be so you can't necessarily say that three percent over five years you know to 15 percent or whatever it is when you compound three percent you can't necessarily say that, that that's okay because not only is, is that not guaranteed, the owner also has to pay an attorney to make the argument in case the tenant uh, objects to the rent increase. So if you talk about the 3% and, and what, the, what, the extra, what the extra rent increase would be that, that the owner would recover, the owner has to weigh that against the, uh, the, the, the guarantee that he or she is going to have to pay an attorney to, to, to make the argument. And that's quickly going to cancel out any increase in rent. So the tendency is going to be for the rent to stay level. 
So, Justin, do you have anything to say to what Alex just said about the rent? In, there's that there really isn't just a cap of three percent. Uh, absolutely. So, first, your original question, uh, Dorsey. Uh, the answer of could a landlord increase it every year three percent? Yes, that's what the bill says. These questions about this bill is complicated or vague may be true if you don't actually practice residential real estate. So, for example, during the introduction, he mentioned the tenant has such a broad definition. Since this is for the city bar, I say if you're an attorney, read RPAPL 711. It is the same definition that we use for tenant throughout residential real estate. This law is neither complicated or confusing, but it is new. And with any new legislation, there will be fights one way or the other. But that is not an argument to remain in the status quo forever. Um, so let's talk about what this actually means. So if your business model depends on the unfettered right to throw people out of their homes without cause or exponentially increase their rent, well, I don't see any tangible reason why we should protect that unfettered right. So what we're putting is an ability for landlords to make a profit and to respond when there are reasons for more rent. So right now, under the bill, a landlord could increase the rent by 10%, and it would be presumed reasonable based on the current CPI. This is also to make sure that landlords can make a profit, but at the same point, tenants are not facing 20, 30, 40, 50% increases. Because if you think that 40% um, increases are too much and that should be prevented, then you're in agreement with this law, but then it's a question of implementation. And I'm happy to have conversations about that. When we look at the, the market, um, during the pandemic, if a corner store drastically raised the price on toilet paper or masks, we would expect the attorney general to come on and stop that price gouging um, based on consumer protection law. And in a situation of a housing crisis, it's no different. We have price gouging because when we see these rental increases, they're not in response to an emergency repair or a sudden increase in the operating expenses of the landlord. It's because they can. And what this bill says is you can make that profit, but if you want a drastic increase, you have to tie it and connect it to what's actually happening in the real world. And so when we're looking at this, we also see that these sorts of situations already exist to around half the housing stock in New York City and across many other states. So will there be issues of first impression? Sure. But I can let you know, as a tenant attorney, he's talking about litigation costs. All those, if you're suing someone for non-payment of rent, where this situation would be coming up, the landlord has already hired their attorney. And as an attendant attorney, I'm gonna be challenging often warranty habitability issues because they didn't make repairs. I might be challenging service because they didn't provide proper notice. I might be looking to see whether they have a valid certificate of occupancy. All these defenses exist. And the great fear that Alex is bringing up right now is that a tenant would have to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that a 3% rent increase would be unreasonable. And the reality is that a judge would almost certainly find it reasonable unless it was a very rare situation. For example, a landlord who's letting their building fall apart completely uh, because of benign neglect or harassment, maybe in that situation. But the vast majority of situations, if a landlord, a, a judge saw the landlord is meeting their presumption, it would be a very high burden for a tenant to overcome that. And because they're already in court, this is only one of many issues and would not add to litigation costs. It would be yet just one more line item on an answer. So Justin, I think you might've suggested that if a landlord 
fixes the roof or makes significant improvements, then it might be reasonable for the landlord to increase the rent more. Is, is that your position? Yeah, that's absolutely what the language intends. If there is an emergency repair, or let's say utility costs suddenly went up, or let's say there was a change in property tax law, where there's a greater burden on the landlord, then the law permits that landlord to pass that along to the tenant in order for the building um, to remain profitable and for the landlord to have the financial and economic resources to maintain the building. This is not a sea change in terms of tenants now own the building and can live in their perpetuity. What this is balances an asymmetric power differential where tenants had very little rights to now they at least have some rights, protection from unreasonable increases and the ability to remain unless there's a good reason for them to be evicted. Got it. And let, let me just get one thing out of the way because I didn't make this clear. If tenants are not paying the rent, then they can be evicted under this law. Is that right? In, in, in other words, non-payment of rent is a good cause to evict somebody, correct? Absolutely. Okay, so um, moving along to the next topic of conception or misconception about the bill. Alex, is this a rent con- control bill or is this not a rent control bill? Well, it, it's interesting it, it, the, to hear the advocates, they've advanced both arguments. The, the sponsor of the bill in the Senate hearing uh, and other others specifically put forth the argument that it's not a rent control bill. It is not. It doesn't control rent. And I think, I mean, I can't get inside their heads, but I think what the point they're making or what the point they're trying to make is that it's not like the a rent stabilized apartment where it says, you know, the, the rent guidelines board puts up uh, and says that you can't raise the rent above a certain amount. There's not a, a hard cap, uh, but I think as you just heard from, from Justin, the, the intent here is absolutely to control rents and to keep rents down. And I think that that was indicated pretty clearly uh, by, by another supporter of the, uh, of the good cause bill, Senator Brisport, who recently put out a tweet that good cause eviction is necessary to cap rental increases. So, you know, I think that what the advocates are saying to try to, you know, maybe ease efforts for passage is that it doesn't technically cap rents. So, so you could raise, raise the rent by, you know, by a certain amount. And there's nothing saying that any particular amount is not allowed or not permitted. But I think you have to look at the overall intent of, of what this is trying to accomplish, which I think Justin pretty pretty eloquently just just stated it, it is to to cap rents um, and you know there's that you know the three percent one and a half percent times CPI presumptive unreasonability threshold but it, it absolutely the the whole purpose of this or one of the whole purposes is to specifically control rents and and then there's just another another point just on the same you know the same topic that just to briefly respond to. Another point Justin made about uh, rent gouging and and you know what what would have happened if during the pandemic uh, you know a store would have get price gouged on masks or uh, or toilet paper or something of that nature. If you look at residential rents during COVID, I mean I, I think Justin will admit, and I think everyone who follows the real estate market will admit that if you went for an apartment in July or August or September of 2020, you got a pretty good deal. Big, big discounts to rent apartments during that time. 
And what we're seeing now, which I think is a good thing for New York City, is that the market is rebounding. People want to live in New York City again. And what you're seeing is essentially a return to where the rents were back right before COVID started. Maybe they're even a little higher. I don't know. But generally, if you were to look at the trend line, you know, if COVID had never happened, rents, for the most part, are where they would have been. So to, to say that you know, this is, it's, it's price gouging. It's, it's what that's essentially saying is that we should take the depressed market that happened because of COVID and we should just freeze that in place forever um, and make it very difficult or make it onerous or make it difficult so that the owner has to hire attorneys and go to court and establish the, a reason for any kind of appreciable rent increase. So, and, 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 you know, related to this misconception or this point, I think that pretty much exactly illustrates why this is a rent control bill. And, and, you know, it's also, you know, just to kind of zoom out a little bit from 30,000 feet, this is part of a bigger effort across the country uh, to, uh, to impose these uh, types of uh, rent control initiatives. It happened in, in Boston, St. Paul, Minnesota is, is probably the most, most watched one right now where there was a hard 3% cap that was passed by referendum but you know, from what I'm reading and, and hearing, it, it seems like that is uh, they're, they're trying to back away from it now because of the consequences it's having on development in that city. So you know, I, I think that the notion that this is not a rent control bill is just not supported by the statements of its supporters and the operation of the bill. If you actually read the bill and, and think about how it'll operate. Well, Alex, let me ask you a question. Justin said that if a landlord makes capital improvements in a project, that would be a reasonable basis for going above, say, 3% or raising the rents at all. What about if, like you said, the market in New York City has dramatically whipsawed during COVID? Would changes in the overall market for real estate be a good reason, a good cause to raise the rent? Well, you know, Dorothy, that's a very good question. And the bill doesn't speak to it. The bill just says whether the increase is reasonable. It doesn't talk about the market. It doesn't talk about capital improvements. It doesn't talk about taxes. It doesn't talk about the price of oil. It doesn't talk about the price of anything. It just says okay. whether it's unreasonable. And that is a factual question. That is going. That right. is, has to be a subject of fact finding. And, and the trier of fact is ultimately going to decide that. And no one knows in advance what any trier of fact is going to decide. Justin, so Alex is saying this is a rent control bill. In your view, is, is this a rent control bill? So when we're talking about rent control, we have to define our terms. So rent control is something that I teach extensively on. And so if you're using the term rent control very, very loosely as any restriction on maximizing profit of landlords, if you're using it that loose of a definition, Perhaps because there is some restriction. So when we're looking at rent control in New York State, the dominant form is rent stabilization um, and good cause protections and limitations on rent increases are two of many things that are included in rent stabilization. But for example, in rent control in New York, you have a right to inherit an apartment. There's no such connection when it comes to the good cause bill. Um, under rent control in New York, the future tenants' rent are connected to past tenants. There is no such restriction when it comes to this bill. 
So if you're just saying that any restriction on the ability of the landlord to increase the rent without any connection to their actual costs, um, arguably. But what this bill intent is not to prevent the landlord from making profit, but to make sure that when there are rent increases, that there's a reason for it beyond saying someone's willing to pay for it because they need shelter and there's nowhere else for them to go. And that's what we currently have. And the reason that we see the fight for you know, more drastic forms of second generation of rent control in Chicago, St. Paul, Boston, California, or many cities upstate is because we've recognized that having unfettered rent increases does not work. And we have the economic research from the last 20 years showing that the theoretical arguments that any form of price control um, is bad for housing, prevents new construction, harms tenants, um, were theories and actually not backed up by the empirical data. And I wanna emphasize while having these connections to what the landlord actual costs, why that matters. So I live in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, the average household income is around $60,000 a year. That's for the household, not for an individual. The average rent in Brooklyn right now, um, if you were going to look for an apartment, according to one recent report that came out a couple uh, weeks ago, is $2,900. So if you're using the term rent burden, which under federal standards means tenants should not pay more than 30% of their income towards rent, that means that an average person in Brooklyn should not pay rent that's more than $1,500 a month. But the reality is they're not gonna be able to find those apartments. And the reason that is true it because landlords know people need shelter. This is a commodity that cannot be easily replicated. You can't just say, well, I'm going to leave unless you're willing to lose your job, your friends, your family, and go somewhere else. And I'm going to let you know, going somewhere else is also expensive. Um, we see that the prices in LA went up. So people moved to Seattle because there were jobs there. The prices of Seattle went up. So people moved to Austin or Tacoma. And you see this domino effect. Now, good cause is not going to singly handed correct the affordable housing problem. It is one small part of a holistic system of laws that need to be passed. But what this quote unquote rent control is not a hard cap. What it is saying is, if you want to increase the rent, we will give you this percentage with very few questions asked. But if you want to go beyond that, for example, if you want to charge more than a 10% increase right now, you would need to be able to justify that with a good reason. And those good reasons would be that your cost of operating the building have increased. That is how it's operated in other jurisdictions. That is what the sponsors of the bill said. And while I think it's good to use public statements by officials, um, especially we're looking at reproductive rights or voting rights law, where people say one thing publicly and another thing in the bill, what is being said publicly and in the bill is landlords are permitted to make a profit, but those increases, if they're gonna be presumed unreasonable, have to be connected to their actual expenses. They can't just raise the rent because they want to. All right, well, let, let's talk about something specific here. I think that people hearing about a bill like this would say, well, what about a landlord who owns a building? Can, can, could it possibly be the case that they can't ever evict a tenant when they themselves wanna live in that unit? And the bill does address that, right, Alex? The bill says that if the landlord wants to evict a tenant when their lease is up, say, and they pay the rent, they can if they want to live in the unit. So what's wrong with that? Well, 
it actually, in most instances, doesn't say that. When I was when I testified at the hearing back on January seventh, and in the Senate Joint Committee hearing, uh, multiple supporters of the bill, you know, sought to reassure various opponents that, oh, don't worry, owner's use is available. If you want to go in and 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 recover possession, um, you know, you you can do that. You know, that's you know, you have nothing to worry about there, but. Again, that's an, another example of what I mentioned earlier, which was, you know, general broad statements or general ideas on the one hand and the actual language of the bill stating another. So if you actually look at the language of the bill, if the building in question has 12 or more units, the owner, the, 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 the remedy of owner's use is unavailable. You cannot uh, refuse to renew a lease you cannot evict a tenant if the building has 12 or more units. It's, it's categorically unavailable. If it's between five and 11 units, you have to meet a standard called immediate and compelling necessity to, uh, to recover possession. What does that mean? If you go back to some older rent control uh, under the old New York's uh, regime of New York City rent control, that system, that was the standard under the old rent control system for owner's use. But if you look at the, at the actual, um, some of the case law under the immediate and compelling necessity standard, it was very, very difficult. I don't know that, that an owner never recovered possession, but in my survey of, of the case law under that statute, it was, it was very, very, it was almost un, totally unavailable to owners. Okay, so 12 or more units, owner's use unavailable. Five to 11 units, pretty darn difficult, not impossible, but close to impossible. So if you, then if you read on in the bill, if it states that there are four or fewer units, there's a broader right to recover possession, but there's less to that than meets the eye. Because if you look further at the bill, at the, the types of buildings, to which the good cause eviction bill applies, it doesn't apply to buildings where there are owner-occupied buildings with three or fewer units. So there's a lot lot less to that than meets the eye. And and so what are you left with? You're left with, on the one hand, assurances that owner's use is available, no big deal. If you're an owner and if if you own one building with eight units, and you have a health issue and you need to move into a first floor or second floor apartment, that's, you know, that's okay. You, you'll be able to do this. Reality is very different. And you know, again, if, and if you're in the same situation and you're building, you own a single building and it has 15 units, that relief is totally unavailable to you. Um, okay, so, let, so let's say I, I'm a landlord and I own the building and I fit within the, the category of under 12, and I want to get rid of the tenant and move in, how long do I have to live there before I can move out and get another tenant and raise the rent? The statute doesn't speak expressly to that. I, I think it's in, you know, I, I don't, I don't recall. I'd have to look a little more closely at the bill, but I, All right, well, let's, I, I, let's ask Justin about that because I think Justin has some strong views on this subject. So the answer to your question is two years, Dorothy. And that was also true where we see owners use in other situations, such as um, in the rent stabilization and rent control regime. It's two years. 
Um, so I, a couple of things I want to address. So first, there was a discussion of, I would agree that rents dropped drastically during the pandemic. And I, I forgot to address that. I just want to say that I actually do disagree with that. If you separate rental markets into three categories, rents dropped in the top third of the luxury market. But if you were a low income tenant or lived in the bottom third, your rents increased. And if you were in the middle tier, um, the middle income apartments, your rent stayed about the same. And the reason they dropped in the luxury market is because people with a lot of means left the city. Well, those of us remain during the pandemic. And when we're talking about owner's use, it's connected to those with means because if you own a building with 12 or more apartments, you have options. You are almost certainly a millionaire and in some cases a billionaire. And when I'm talking about billionaires, these laws aren't being passed in abstract, they're connected to what actually happens in the world. So in the rent stabilization regime, um, we had the Economakis family who are um, a billionaire real estate empire in New York City. And they bought a building that had 10 units in the East Village and they evicted every single person in that unit so they could have the entire building to themselves. So in response to that, legislators have now put in restrictions about how many units you can take at once to prevent entire buildings being emptied out. The thought being is if you own 12 or more units, you probably have the financial resources to get an additional unit if a family member needs it. Because almost by definition, if I go in three easy right now and try to find a 12 unit apartment, chances are we're talking millions, tens of millions, if not more to do that. So you have the financial options, unlike those tenants who you're evicting who may not have those options. In units to five to 11, if you are sick and you need a first floor apartment and financially you don't have the resources to suddenly go buy another unit, that may qualify as a very good reason. And so there is flexibility for a court to look into that, but also to make sure that people aren't committing fraud as a way just to get people out because they want to. Right. I've so, been in so housing court where people have literally been talking in the hallways. I'm giving advice being like, well, just because you want this person out, why don't you just say you want it for your own family's use? And I've litigated these issues where once I got to discovery because the people were lucky enough to get an attorney, we discovered that they were just lying. There was no intent for them personally to use it. They were just using it as pretext to get people out. And then if you live in smaller buildings where it's four or less units, there's very little restriction in terms of getting people out because the assumption is those true small-time landlords, unlike the average landlord in New York City who owns 900 apartments, they may not have the financial resources to find other places for their immediate family. So the law provides for them to be able to evict someone. Even though the tenants did nothing wrong, we recognize that if you own four smaller units, you may not be a millionaire or billionaire. And so the law does provide that as an out for them to help their families. Okay, um, so, just, so, oh, I'm sorry, Dorothy, I just wanted to supplement. I, I couldn't, I was flipping through the bill and I couldn't find what I was what I was looking for, but I did find it. What it states is that a tenant required to surrender your house, the, the housing accommodation based on owner's use has a cause of action against a landlord who makes a fraudulent statement, right? So I think what we're talking about, what the statute addresses is, if a landlord needs to recover possession and lies about the reason why, then you know no one should lie in court. No one should make a fraudulent statement to a court. So you know I don't have a huge problem with with that principle. But again, Justin stated that well, there's a two-year requirement. That's it's not in the statute. It's just not there. 
And you know, while that might, while there might be a standard in the rent stabilization law or in other contexts, that's just another example about how you know, you know, if this were passed, there would just be you know no guidance. I mean, yeah, you could analogize, but ultimately, this is all going to be these are all going to be issues of first impression. You know, I'm glad that Justin has admitted uh, or tacitly admitted that uh, when certain senators you know, wanted to reassure the wide availability of, of owner's use. That's simply not the case. And again, if, you know, if those are the reasons that that's the rationale behind why there's a limit of 12 on, on, on building of 12 or more units, if that's the rationale, that's the rationale, but that's not what's being presented. It's not quite honest to be, to be very frank for some of the proponents. Now, very briefly, one other issue I wanted to raise um, as to that point that if someone owns 12 or more units, they're likely a millionaire or a billionaire. I do a lot of work with small property owner groups. And I can tell you that someone with 12, who owns a single building with 12 or 14 or 15 units is not a millionaire or a billionaire. In, in, in many, many cases, th- those small owners are immigrants. They're diverse people of color who are just trying to, to, to make ends meet try to provide financial security for their family. And bills like this, on top of you know, the rent stabilization law, HSTPA, it's really killing these people. It's, it is, it's just strangling them. And you know, the, the assumption, the, it, there seems to be an assumption, you know, which, which is inherent in, in some of Justin's statements, that if you're a real property owner, you're a monopoly man you know, with a top hat and a cigar, and, and for fun, you you take a jump off of diving boards into pools of, of money. You know there are some very large companies that own real estate, absolutely. But you go out, even in Manhattan, but certainly in the outer boroughs. You know there's a lot of small owners that are having trouble making ends meet right now in New York State. And 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 rather than the, the stereotype that you know all of these owners are you know rapacious and want to kick people out, you talk to any owner. What do they value most? They value stable buildings. You know, they, I've talked to so many owners, you know, when, when I was a tenant, I, I was a tenant of a rent stabilized building right after my wife and I got married in Queens. And my, my landlord was building a new building next door. And I went and complained about the noise, but I was a good tenant. I paid my rent on time. And before I could say another word, he offered to lower my rent because he wanted me to stay there. And I think the overwhelming majority of owners fall into that category. They don't want, they, they want a stable building. They want stable rent. They want good people. And if someone's a good tenant and, and, and someone is paying the rent on time, you know, they're, they're not going to, you know, just willy nilly for the heck of it. Even if just based on the, on the, on their own self financial self-interest, what if it takes months and months to get someone in as a new tenant? What if that new tenant doesn't pay? There's a lot of risk in that tenant owners, want stability, I can pretty much say first and foremost uh, in their in their buildings. As someone who represents hundreds of tenants, when you're trying to tell me what is going to work for tenants, I can let you know that every day in court, with the quarter million of cases of people facing eviction right now, I see examples where people want them out just because. And if landlords truly want stability, this will provide them income that they can predict. And it provides tenants the ability to prepare for increases. So if stability is what's wanted, that's what this law provides. Alex has talked about this bill as being without precedent. 
and Justin has pointed to precedents around the country as well as in municipalities in New York State. So, Alex, why is this bill um, not similar to New Jersey's um, anti-eviction statute? You know, again, that was during the Senate hearing. That was one of the, I, I believe, one of the uh, the tenant advocates said that this bill was specifically modeled after and. I don't know if explicitly stated, but implied that this is more or less uh, a carbon copy of what's been in New Jersey for almost 50 years and it didn't collapse the market there. So what's the big deal? But if you actually you actually compare this bill to what's in what's in New Jersey, they're, they're really nothing alike. I, I actually, in my written testimony to the Senate, which is available on the New York State Senate website, I went into this in detail. One example of many is an issue we've been talking about uh, relating to the issue of rent increases, okay? What the New York bill says is that rent increases can't be unreasonable. And uh, if it's th- more than 3% or one and a half times CPI, it's presumptively unreasonable. If you look at the analog- analogous provision in the New Jersey bill, the New Jersey statute, that says that a rent increase cannot be unconscionable an unconscionable rent increase is an is is something that the, the, I believe the New York case law states that it shocks the conscience. There is case law. We have a similar in New York. We have a similar uh, standard when you have condo or co-op conversions, and you have a tenant, uh, a non-purchasing tenant who remains in possession. You know who who elects to continue to to rent and not to not to purchase a unit. Uh, they, 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 they can't be subject to a not unconscionable rent increase. There's case law in New York that a 75% increase to, to, to return a, a, an apartment to market rates is not unconscionable. So if that were the, so if we had the New Jersey statute uh, in the New York bill, that would be the standard. Now, m- my assumption is that the, the drafters of the bill are aware of that aware of that case law and they made it unreasonable and the 3% one and a half times CPI standard again. So obviously it's a far, far different standard in, in, in New Jersey than the New York bill. And then if you look further uh, as to some of the other good cause bases in, in New Jersey, there are a lot more bases to, to recover possession per, you know, buying or selling a building, condo conversion, the tenant has made threats against the, the landlord. Um, I believe in all, I have, I have them laid out in my written testimony, but I think there's about eight or nine additional standards that are laid out in New Jersey. So um, New, the New Jersey statute is nothing at all like New York. As far as the, uh, the bills that are passed in some of the localities in upstate New York, they, they have been passed in some localities, but others they haven't. And the, the, in the city of Rochester, uh, they rejected the local good cause proposal there for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, they rejected it because, uh, and this is something I've, I've written about in the context of, of proposals on commercial rent control, localities in New York State don't have the power to impose rent control. That can only be done by New York State. You know, this is, you know, as we talked about earlier, this is there's very little doubt this is a you know a rent control bill and that it's intended to be a rent control bill, so it can't be right. passed well, that, by a locality. That, 
Right. Well, that's a whole big area, Alex. And I I, I know that you have very strong views on that subject of the um, ability or the author authority of municipalities in New York to to pass rent control bills. So let's not go there. Okay. let's just ask Justin if he has a thought just in a minute or less on whether the New Jersey bill is analogous to, to, to the New York state bill. They're similar in the fact that it shows that having some restriction towards rent to make it connect it to the real world and having only good cause to evict someone works. It has worked for over 50 years in New Jersey. It has worked in the rent stabilization system or the rent control system that has existed in New York for over 50 years. In terms of the standard, Alex is correct. The standard is the difference between unreasonable and unconscionable. And the reason is, is that We don't want to see 75% rent increases in New York state. So that difference exists, but it's a difference of not of kind, but a difference of recognizing that we're going to learn from the experiences of New Jersey and make a better law. Um, When it comes to the source, the causes, threats to the landlord, that is included in this bill. If you commit a nuisance or you commit a crime under good cause, under the proposed bill, that is included. The vast majority of the New Jersey reasons are already included just under different names based on decades of precedent under New York state real estate law using different terms because we're different states. Um, The ones that aren't included is, Alex is correct, selling the building or the condo conversions, those are not included in good cause. And the reason being is that we have seen in jurisdictions that people use that as a way to get around um, the proposed bills. And so that was a conscious choice. We see that done have been used as a loophole in the past. And so that loophole is being closed. But if someone is damaging a property, committing threats, Airbnb, all those reasons are already included in the bill and well-established in the case law. Actually on Airbnb, I actually, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up, Justin. If you actually look at the bill, um, if you look at uh, section D, uh, 214D, it states that one of the bases for good cause is occupancy of the housing accommodation by the tenant is in violation or causes a violation of law and the landlord is subject to, to civil or criminal penalties. Okay, so Airbnb is in violation of, in, in most instances, violation of the multiple dwelling law. But then it goes on to say that provided that an agency of the state or municipality having jurisdiction has issued an order requiring the tenant to vacate the housing accommodation. But that doesn't happen in Airbnb situations. So let's take a tenant who's Airbnb. What will happen? Okay, so you have someone who's using the housing accommodation in violation of law as a a short-term rental. But if the city doesn't come in and force the tenant to, to vacate, if it instead simply issues a violation to the owner, that's not good cause. You can't evict that tenant. That tenant can Airbnb with impunity under the under the language of the bill. And again, that's something that it's, it's yet another example of poor drafting, of not really thinking through what will happen in the real world uh, if, if this is passed. There might be general ideas, there might be a thought process of, of what could happen, but you know, we we have to go with what's in what's in the bill. And and the bill does not allow uh, Airbnb uh, use to be a basis for good cause in the absence of a very unlikely vacate order. Um, or if the person is paying, let's say, $500 a night, they're going to be sued for a non-payment after one week or be forced to pay that $500 per night 
um, as required by the lease agreement, that the landlord can set whatever initial rent that they want. Let's just step back a minute. I think that both of you would concede that there is an issue with affordable housing in New York. So let me um, ask you, Alex, do you think there's a problem with affordable housing in New York State? New York State's a very big place, right? You have New York City, which is a world, it's one of the, you know, one of the best cities, the most dynamic, largest cities in the world, right? But if you go upstate to, you know, it, it's, it's a totally different, it's a totally different world, right? Right. Uh, in terms, in terms of, of housing affordability, New York State, you know, New York City, Manhattan, these are very little, it's a little island and there's a lot of people packed into a very little island and, and, and the other four boroughs. Um, okay, so so uh, affordable what, housing, you will concede, affordable housing is an issue in New York City, right? Yes, yes. Okay, but now, so is but, there a better bill than the um, good cause eviction bill? Can, okay. can you imagine a bill that would accomplish the goals that Justin talks about that is mm-hmm. not this bill? And I'll give you mm-hmm. just one minute, okay? Okay, just, just one minute. I think what's inherent in your question is, you know, the, the fact that it has to be a, you know, a, a bill about good cause eviction or freezing people in place. If we want to encourage housing construction, if we want to encourage more people to live in New York City and have some and have places for there to live, we have to encourage construction. I mean, I know right now there's the 421A substitute uh, bill being considered, but if, if there are more people moving in, uh, into New York City, Uh, and we want people to have more options, we have to encourage housing construction and we have to put incentives in place and and otherwise have an atmosphere that encourages owners to build housing so that people have more options for places to live. And again, if you talk about the rent stabilization law, the HSTPA, again, the the intent is to purportedly to help people, but what's happening? What's happening is that uh, the incentives in that law are, are causing more and more apartments to be taken off the market because they can't be rented. So I think that if you look at everything, you know, even, you know, rent stabilization, you know, there's ways to do it better that protect tenants that don't completely remove incentives for owners to improve apartments. I think we have to encourage housing construction. And I think that we can't have this adversarial relationship which I think underpins good cause, you know, the HSTPA, it's very oppositional and it's very confrontational. If you had a Venn diagram of solutions to, to, that would help tenants and help landlords, I think there's a lot more here that if we really wanted to have a discussion, there could be agreement on. I mean, right now in, this, in, the, in, the, in the legislature, they're talking about the housing access voucher program. They're t- talking about assistance to help people. I think any owner, I don't think any owner or any advocate for owners or, or any landlord wants people to be on the street. And I think as a matter of public policy, we shouldn't want people to be on the street. If there are people okay. who, you know, okay. so I, that, that we, we can, we can, the bottom line is there are a lot of things we can do that will help everyone without being confrontational and oppositional. We should work together, not try to, you know, take one class of people that's disfavored and stick it to them because they're billionaires and millionaires or they're perceived to be when that's not the case. Okay, so Justin, do you think that the good cause eviction bill is a perfect bill and will solve the problem of affordable housing in New York? 
Absolutely not. There is no silver bullet that's going to solve the housing crisis in New York. You're going to have to approach it holistically from many different angles. The housing vouchers and including subsidies for low-income New Yorkers is a step. Making sure everybody has a right to attorney so that the laws on the books are actually enforced in the court of the law is an important step. Building more housing, especially decommodified housing, is an important step. Making sure that we stop speculation, which increases the cost of land, which prevents the, instruction, the construction of more housing, is an important step. Changing um, zoning so there's fewer parking requirements and other unnecessary restrictions is an important step. But what good cause does is provides a stability for tenants now. If we're going to take the build, build, build it approach, that is something that takes decades. But good cause doesn't prevent building. The biggest building boom in the history of New York was in the 1920s, immediately following the first rent laws that were passed in New York. So what we want to do is protect the tenants that are currently in New York State with good cause, ensure that landlords can make a reasonable profit, which is why we have so many protections in place to help the property owners do that because we serve no benefit from harming them. But what we're making sure is that landlords don't have all the power because when you have an asymmetrical power structure, it leads to abuse, harassment, and discrimination. And that's a lived experience of a lot of people. So we're just leveling the playing ground, making sure you can have reasonable profits, but also avoiding speculation that is frankly bad for society and prevents the creation of new housing. Well, thank you, Justin. You both, Alex and Justin, have been passionate and articulate speakers for the two sides on this issue. And I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Dorothy. And, and thank you, Justin. Thank you so much for the invite, Dorothy and Alex. It's uh, always a pleasure learning from your experiences. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.